We're turning this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I've been thinking recently about what would be the last sermons I would preach to you, what I would want you to hear, what I would want you to remember, and certainly what is dealt with in this chapter is one of those things, one of those issues, doctrines that I would want to leave with you before I would leave you. Second Timothy chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse 1. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Bow with me for a moment, please, in prayer. And let's seek the Lord together. Almighty God, we come rejoicing that one of those great names thou hast given to us to reveal something of thyself is El Shaddai the all-sufficient God. Lord, we have no sufficiency in ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of Thee. And we pray that Thou will therefore come, be unto Thy servant all that he needs Thee to be just at this hour. In his thinking, in his feelings, in his words, in the preaching that he engages in, and may be led by the Holy Spirit in all that is said. Spirit of God, we pray that thou wilt as well give the understanding mind, and there will be ears to hear what God would have to say. Let it not just be, Lord, a sermon, but something that comes from thee, a message that is alive with the power of the Lord. The preacher will end up fading into the background as Christ comes and speaks to his people. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it all. Amen and amen. You can only gather from Paul's letters to Timothy that the apostle was not a believer in keeping things back from the one he called his own son in the faith in order to protect Timothy from his tendency to be afraid. He didn't spare him when it came time to tell him things he needed to hear. Timothy's struggle with fearfulness 
is gleaned back in chapter 1 of this second letter where Paul tells them that God hath not given to us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And from what he goes on to say in that chapter, it's, it's clear that he's telling Timothy in so many words, Timothy, you need to fight that tendency you have in you to be afraid. So even though he knew right well that Timothy was often troubled with a spirit of fear, fearful about the future, fearful about his own life, fearful about the ministry, the church, Paul did not hesitate to make statements like that found in verse 1 of chapter 3 of this epistle in the last days. Know also this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. I'm telling you now, Timothy, dangerous times are coming. Paul did not believe that the best thing you can do for someone who is about to face dangerous and very difficult times is to keep that fact from them. Whether or not they are of a fearful or nervous disposition. The best thing you can do is to tell them what they need to hear. The best thing. And that's what the Holy Ghost did when he gave Paul these words to tell Timothy. In the last days, perilous times shall come. The last days, what are they? Well, from a study of the use of this phrase in Scripture, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to limit this expression to refer to the time just before the return of Jesus Christ. We must be careful to distinguish between Christ at the last day and Paul's in the last days. Peter quotes, for instance, Joel in Acts chapter 2 about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which took place some 2,000 years ago. Peter says to the crowd, this is that. This is what you're seeing, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. They're speaking these languages they've never been taught. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel and now he quotes him, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The last days, that's what's happening, and it was 2,000 years ago. Last days. We're in the last days. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll find that in Verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3, he's referring to that age that is ushered in by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Ever since then, we have been in the last days, that long period of time between Christ's first and second coming. Perilous times shall come. That word perilous, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used with the maniac of Gadara, Matthew 8, 28, possessed with devils who were, Matthew says, exceeding fierce. The word fierce is the same word used here by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Perilous. Fierce times shall come. It has the idea of times that are harsh, that are difficult, that are dangerous, that are painful. And the reason for the perilous times is because of the people. That'll be found in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3, as he describes why it will be so difficult and so dangerous, so perilous. Those few verses describe the kind of people that will make life for God's people dangerous and difficult to endure. And Paul's concise word of instruction in verse 5 to Timothy as to what his response should be to these people. Remember, last days, it's still last days. His response should be, from such, turn away. Avoid them. Shun them. 
You are not to keep company with them. Even if they, under the pretense of winning them over. Stay away from them. They're dangerous. Why should he turn away from them? Because he says, of this sort, of this sort, out from among these people come false teachers and false prophets and doctrinal error, which infiltrate the home. And he says, they dupe the weak-minded women with their dangerous doctrine. Summarizing there now. They dupe the weak-minded women. They get into the home like that. Get to the woman. And this has been repeated so often in the history of the church. Local churches get to the woman and you get to the man. All you have to do is reference the Garden of Eden. Satan did not go at Adam. He got to Eve. The way to get to the man is to get to the woman. Paul says, shun them. Stay away. It's against that backdrop that Paul gives a charge to Timothy about his responsibility, what he needs to do in light of those perilous times. Because you can rest assured that such times are going to affect the church in the last days. And that's us. It's about the effect these perilous times have upon the church and how we are supposed to respond to it all that I want to say a few things about this morning. So, if you are interested in sermon titles or what is technically called a sermon proposition... It's what to do when the preaching of sound doctrine is not popular. What to do when the preaching of sound doctrine is not popular. What is the response that God calls for from his people? That's what he's talking about in this opening verses of chapter 4. Well, first realize that there will always be times when people are especially averse to the preaching of sound doctrine. There will always be times when people will be averse to the preaching of sound doctrine. Note I said, I should say I didn't stop it to preaching. It's the preaching of sound doctrine. That's the issue. The time will come, verse 3, Paul tells them, the time will come, you can bank on it, it's a certainty, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. It was something that Timothy could expect in his own day. Timothy, I'm telling you now, you're going to face this. People will not want to hear the preaching of sound doctrine. Oh, they'll want to hear preaching, as we'll see in a moment. But it won't be sound doctrine that they'll come to hear. 18th century English Baptist preacher John Gill preceded Spurgeon, of course, if you know anything of the history there, strict Baptist. John Gill, in his comment on this verse, said this about these kind of people. He says, They have appeared more or less in all ages since, and in none more than in ours. Oh, Gill said that about England, London. I wonder what Gill would say about our day, about the aversion that is found now in Christendom to sound doctrine when doctrine has become in many circles a dirty word controversial and they won't touch it with a 10 foot pole 
They will not endure sound doctrine. The word means to tolerate it, put up with it. That is, they, they, they don't have any time for it. They have no interest, no interest at all. No desire to hear the preaching of sound doctrine. They don't want to put themselves under it. Notice it's sound doctrine. The word sound, uh, the old English word there, it's, it's, it, it means, uh, how would I say it? Doctrine that is healthy. Healthy doctrine. Doctrine that promotes spiritual life and doesn't harm it. They will not want to hear the kind of preaching that will promote spiritual growth, spiritual health, spiritual vitality. They will turn away from it. We are living in these last days at a season when many, many professing Christians simply have no interest in hearing the great truths of the gospel that produce spiritual health. And when you're talking about producing spiritual health, you're talking about the production, the yielding uh, in the life of spiritual fruit. In short terms, it's old-fashioned holiness. That's all that it comes down to. The kind of teaching that will promote, that will advance a, holy life, a holiness of life where there is a greater and deeper separation from sin and from the world and from the devil's works and from the flesh and there is growth in the graces of the Spirit of God. You see, to do that, you have to preach the law of the Lord. To do that, you've got to preach this will of God. What does the Lord want? What does He require? And what does He forbid? What pleases the Lord? And what displeases the Lord? You know, when you're interested in those things from your heart, you're quite happy to hear healthy doctrine, sound doctrine that advances that. But if you're not interested in those things at all, then guess what? I have no time for that. And you write it off. Boring, irrelevant, not important, not interesting. It's doctrine. Sound doctrine isn't, by their standards at least, those who won't endure it, sound doctrine isn't exciting. Sound doctrine requires serious thinking. I mean, you've got to follow it. You've got to follow the sermon. You have to seek to understand what the preacher's actually saying and how he's developing the truth of Scripture. I mean, it should be a case where if you check out for 30 seconds to a minute when the preacher's developing and expounding the topic, well, well I, I missed something there. It should be that way. When you can check out for 10 minutes and take a nap and come right back in and you don't think you've missed one thing and you're probably right, you've got a problem on your hands. The preaching of sound doctrine would require effort and study and prayer. But how many have time for that? Sound doctrine makes expectations of God's people. Oh, it, 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 it proclaims, it declares without fail the tremendous blessings and rewards that God gives to His people, but that does not negate the fact that it certainly puts expectations upon a Christian and how the Christian lives his life. Because sound doctrine is the doctrine of Scripture. 
the last days, they're going to be dangerous, Timothy. You're going to find people don't want to hear your preaching. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. But here's what they want to hear. He says three things about them. They will heed to themselves teachers having itching ears. They will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will be turned unto fables. Those are the three things, three marks that will distinguish them from those that are really serious about the gospel, about sound doctrine. They pile up, the, the idea there is they pile up in heaps all kinds of teachers and preachers who will scratch their itches. The idea in the very graphic languages, they have these carnal desires and these carnal ideas that come on and scratch at, oh, that feels so good. You know how it is when you have an itch and you just get a mosquito bite. Oh, just scratch that. It's a very vivid illustration of what these people are looking for. They want to listen to preachers and teachers who will tell them what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. Paul is describing a people who want something different, something, something sensational, something that will fascinate them, but they don't really have any time for sober truth and doctrine. They would rather be entertained. And I will tell you now, the entertainment industry is alive and well in Christendom. From the music, to the lighting, to the preaching, to the dress, to the sacred dance, to the fun times. I mean, church is supposed to be fun, right? what you hear. Fun. And you see how advanced that mentality is when so many within it don't even realize it, that this is so far off the mark. It's now accepted. Paul tells Timothy it's going to happen. In other words, when you have teachers uh, heaped up, all kinds just tell me who will scratch my itches, they will come along and say, in essence, listen, you can have the world and Jesus too. You can have it all. It's nothing new. Like those described in Jeremiah's day. They were not interested in the preaching of sound doctrine. Listen, if there was everyone that was preaching sound doctrine, it was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was preaching sound doctrine come directly from God. Did they want to hear it? No. The prophets prophesy falsely. There were plenty of false prophets with a false message. It wasn't sound doctrine. The prophets prophesy falsely, and my people love to have it so. And that's what Jehovah said. So people taking the name of Christian, a Christ one, they don't have real interest in God's redemptive truth as it is in Christ. The truth that deals with sin, that deals with damnation, truth that deals with the necessity 
of not only the pardon for sin, but the necessity of this inward work of the Holy Spirit and an inward change of their life. But during these seasons I'm describing here, they have, they have no interest in, no stomach for the sobering truths of the gospel. So they reject sound doctrine, and they go, they go looking for some place, someone who will tell them what they want to hear. Someone will tell them, you know, feel-good stories that will make them feel warm all over. They look for doctrine that will allow them to be comfortable with the world and sin. Heaven help you if you make them uncomfortable. You are in trouble if the preaching actually steps on their toes. If an arrow is shot to their hearts, if their sin is rebuked. So he tells them, you know, make sure you keep rebuking, Timothy. Oh, don't want to hear that. That's where we are. There always, there always has been, there always will be seasons like that when people are not going to be interested in the preaching of sound doctrine. Paul warns Timothy, Timothy, day is coming when people won't want to come to hear your preaching. There's someone down the street, Timothy, who's more interesting, who's more relevant awful word who's more entertaining and you know what that guy down the street you'll be out by noon so you can get to the beach or watch that series you've been watching on the television. It won't be a time of great church growth. People won't be interested. Perilous times are coming. Secondly, during times like this, The great responsibility of the gospel preacher and Christ's people is to stay the gospel course. That's the great responsibility of the gospel preacher and Christ's people. They must stick to the gospel course. Paul gives the charge to Timothy in verses 1 and 2 that really comes to every gospel preacher in any age. And embedded in that charge to gospel preachers is, of course, a charge to every gospel believer, whether or not they're a preacher, because they really are a preacher, may not called of God to this service, but they're still the lights of the world. They're still the ones who bear about the gospel. They tell the gospel to others. So this is not just a section that's meant to be preached to preachers. It's a pastoral epistle, I grant you. But don't think for one moment that the pastoral epistles are just for preachers and not for the congregation. Right? I want to emphasize that. What does that mean? I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. In the first place, it means that we must stay the course in declaring the gospel whether or not people are interested in hearing it. Now, you need to take that home with you and chew on it a good long while. You keep declaring the gospel... You keep preaching the sound doctrine whether or not people want to hear it. 
Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. That, that phrase, be instant, be instant, it comes from a root word that means to stand. And it's coupled with a prefix that means to stand ready. The idea is one of standing fast by pressing on with all the urgency of this work of preaching the word and sound doctrine. Ever ready, carrying on that, whether or not people want to hear it. In season, out of season. You see, there'll be times, and, and that's just, this is church history, there'll be times when preaching sound doctrine will not be in season. It will not be welcomed and received. But if there are times when it's in season, obviously there are times when it's in season, there are times when it's out of season. When it will not be welcome, it will be rejected. There'll be the times when they will heap themselves teachers having itching ears. Those are those times that whether or not that's the case, you have to keep on preaching sound doctrine. You don't stop because people aren't interested. You stand ready. You stand fast. But it means something else. If you're going to stay the course in declaring the gospel, whether or not people want to hear it, it means you also stay the course in defining the gospel. See, the problem here, the problem here is there's, <laughs> it's all the false doctrine. So, especially in those times, the church needs to define the gospel. So, if, if the church of Jesus Christ, if this church is going to be a place where there continues to be the preaching of sound doctrine, it's absolutely necessary that the church, the Lord's people, keep on defining the terms according to Scripture. You keep on defining the terms, and you don't let someone else define the terms. It's the Scripture that defines the terms of what the true gospel doctrine is. In other words, I understand I have this duty. It's part of being called to the ministry. And that will not stop when I leave here. A call to the ministry is a lifelong call. Amen. And I will have that call all my days as long as God gives me the mind to keep defining the terms of the gospel in whatever area or venue God gives me to do it, I am to do it. But it's not just mine. It's yours. It doesn't just lie with the preacher. It's with Christ's people as well. So it is, it's, it's my duty, but it's also your duty to keep the gospel waters clear. Because the devil is out to muddy them, I can assure you. To keep out anything that would water down the gospel, that would actually change its message, that would contaminate, defile the truth, as it is in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. The word corrupt, we're not like many who corrupt it. The only time that word is used in the New Testament. It refers to those who were hucksters, who used the gospel preaching to make money. It was a, a, it was a venue for for getting rich for them. But in order to do that, you see, 
you have to adulterate the Word of God. They had to change it. They had to bring in an admixture of truth and error if it was going to be a money-making venture. You, you just sit down and watch any modern-day televangelist and you're seeing a huckster. He's raking in his millions upon millions. A smattering of truth and a whole lot of error. Talks about Jesus. We love Jesus. But you listen carefully, you'll find the doctrine is not according to Scripture. Corrupting the Word of God. Paul says the gospel that he preached was sincere. The word means pure. There was no admixture of lies and truth. And all his life, Paul just kept defining that gospel, setting down the terms over and over again, regardless of whether the error sprung up on the left or on the right. Here's the, he just kept hammering it and hammering it and hammering it. This is the gospel. Not looking for ways to compromise it, to adjust it, make it convenient for people to hear. He had no time for it. So, nothing has changed, you know, from, from that day to this. We, we, must, we must stay this course, this, this defining the gospel as a denomination, as a church, as individual believers. We have to keep on doing that. It's, it's our calling. Please don't make the awful mistake of simply wanting to learn all you can about the gospel to go for a deeper grasp of gospel doctrine and gospel truth and simply let it remain with you for your enjoyment personally in your own life. There is a place for that. But at the same time, the gospel is not meant that you have this obligation as much as I have the obligation to set forth the true doctrine of the gospel, to define the terms and I have to believe that you'll be placed in positions you have been placed where you just need to speak up and say that's false doctrine. Amen. It might upset people, but it's false. That's a lie that was just said. What you think is, is the truth is not the truth, and here's why. That's, that's everyone taking personal responsibility as you stay the course. Because we're in these last days. This is what we're seeing. Abounding. It's a, there's been so much dilution of the gospel, so much pollution of the gospel. Half-truths, downright errors. It's not a time when you want, no time would you want this, but it certainly now is not a time when you have Christians who find it very difficult to explain even the fundamental doctrines of the gospel. Just, just basic, not getting really much beyond, well, Jesus died for me on the cross and saved me from my sins. It's a wonderful truth. But do you know what that means? Do you know why the death on the cross actually resulted in your being forgiven your sins? Do you understand how that works into God declaring a sinner to be righteous in his sight? That's... That's all part of defining the terms of the gospel. Yes. And I would, I would like to leave here knowing that 
Yes, the gospel has got a grip on you. This, this sound doctrine is a grip on your life, but that you also have a grip on it. You know the sound doctrine, so you could define it. Stay the course. So it's just for this very reason that no matter what the season, whether it's the time when it's in or it's out, we must keep defining this gospel. What is it? We've got a handful of things here. To me, is what the gospel is all about. It's to me what I've sought to preach my whole ministry. Different ways, verse, text, it's always come back to those things. It's, certainly, it's the good news. It's good. What's so good about it? Why is it good news? It's the good news in the first place of sovereign grace. The gospel is the gospel of sovereign grace. And both of those words must be understood and received with gladness if it's going to be good news. Sovereign grace. In other words, the gospel is that story where it is all of grace and it's all of God. All of grace, all of God. Grace. (laughs) You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't be a good boy or a good girl to get it. It's just something that God does freely out of the infinite love of his heart to actually bring a defiled, filthy, wretched sinner into his presence and make him a son of God. That's all grace. Nothing in us, nothing ever seen in us, we would ever do, has moved God to do anything. But we have merited fully his hell. What we have earned completely from start to finish is to spend eternity suffering in the flames of hell. That is the only thing we have ever earned by our living. But grace, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that grace is sovereign. It's all of God. He gives that grace as it pleases Him. Where He wants to give it, where He wants to give it, how much He wants to give it, because He's God. He's the sovereign. He's the king. He always does as He wills. He does his pleasure. That's good news. I know I've told you over the last 17 years sometime along the way, but when I first saw this fact, I'd I'd, I'd graduated from a Christian university. I'm, I'm probably 24, 25, maybe 26 years of age. And I realized that my being among the people of God was a matter of God's sovereign grace. It was a matter of his sovereign election. And he chose me because it pleased him to choose me, not because of anything in me. And he did not leave me to my sin. He did not leave me to myself. I mean, it it thrilled my soul. It so humbled me that the Lord set his love, everlasting love upon me because it pleased him. It was a turning point for me. The sovereign grace. It's the sovereign grace, the same, not just at salvation. I... I'm getting old and forgetful. So if I repeat myself, you just write it off as he's old and forgetful. He's told us this before. That's okay. I'll tell it to you again. Here I am driving along the interstate New Jersey Turnpike, and I am in the depths of depression. The depths of depression. So down about my own spiritual life. Seem to be going nowhere but down. Prayerless and careless and... Just 
crying as I'm driving down the road? And then the Holy Spirit brought to my mind this glorious truth. God's making all things work together for good. Even the state that I'm in is part of the plan. And I am exactly where God wants me to be. A thousand pounds weight went off of my heart. It was so freeing. It did not leave me feeling I had a license to sin. Quite the contrary. I wanted to live more to please the Lord. But it was a turning point in my life. Everything was going according to plan. His plan. I'm now flying down the New Jersey Turnpike at 100 miles an hour and didn't even know it. It's sovereign grace. It's the gospel of Christ's substitutionary death. Vicarious death. You know the term so well. He died for you. He died in your stead. You belong there. You belong to be the one, the object. You belong to be the one. You earned the place to be the object of God's infinite wrath. You deserved it. It broke God's law how many times over? Still break it. To this day, you still break it. But Christ said, I'll go, and in their place, I will take everything, everything, every ounce of your wrath. I will bear it. I will bear it in my own body on the tree. I will die for them so they won't have to die. But you see, it's not just a vicarious death. The gospel is the story of Christ's vicarious life. That's what I didn't hear about growing up. As a matter of fact, it was his vicarious life that gave the value to his vicarious death. It was that holy life, the sinless life, a life I could never live. He kept every law, every jot and tittle, nothing did he fail in. He kept it perfectly obeyed. Why? Not for himself. He wasn't earning anything. But he had to earn a righteousness in my stead because I could not earn it. God will only be pleased with perfect obedience. And I can't yield that. I can't give that. I can't. As much as I would want to. As much as I would try to obey the law of the Lord. fact is, I still fail. And I break it. And it's not just sins of ignorance. Come on, on, let's just all fess up. It's not just sins of ignorance. We go into sin with our eyes open. We needed someone who was going to live a perfect life in our place that would please God completely. And that one is Jesus Christ. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I lay my whole eternity upon that life, upon that death. That's the good news. It also is the gospel of the success of his atonement. A 
atonement. Don't think you hear about that very much in this day of entertainment, the atonement. The shedding of the blood. Why did the shedding of the blood actually bring about our salvation? What does the shedding of the blood have to do with anything? Now, it pleased God. The only way he was going to be satisfied was going to be through the death of his son. And the only way that death was to take place was by the shedding of blood on the cross and no other way. It It wouldn't be death by hanging. It had to be death by the cross. Blood had to be shed because the life of the flesh is in the blood and he gave his life. He had to die because the soul that sinneth it shall die. We have to die so someone's got to die in our stead. The blood had to be shed. It's the blood that atones for our sin. It's that which covers everything. The atonement. It satisfies God. It hides It hides our sin as the old Puritan would say, so well that the wrath of God and the justice of God cannot find our sins are so hidden under the blood. So the old hymn has it right, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Blood, precious, it's successful. That blood was not shed in vain. Not one drop fell to the ground without an intent, a design, a purpose by God to actually pardon sins. He succeeded in what he came to do, and that was to atone for all of the sins of all of his people. He succeeded completely in that. He achieved it. Not merely make it a possibility, a fact. I finished it. I did what I came to do. And now he enters into heaven by his own blood. Paul says in Hebrews, by his own blood he enters in. As the high priest would say, here's the blood, Father, forgive them. It's the gospel of his resurrection from the dead. Because he lives, so shall I. The grave is not the end, it is just a sleep. Just a sleep. I'm not afraid to go to bed at night. I look forward to it, especially these last number of weeks. Welcoming. Can't wait to close my eyes. Don't you see? That's how it should be for us with death. Can't wait to close my eyes and open them in glory. That's reality. That's the good news. If, I've, if I'm his, I have nothing to be afraid of. If I'm not his, oh, I would be scared to death of death. But he dealt with death for me. And he rose again so I could rise again one day from the dead and be forever with the Lord. It's the gospel of sanctifying grace. Yes, it's justifying grace, but it's sanctifying grace. What the Lord showed me on the New Jersey Turnpike many years ago was that it is grace, it's His grace that is going to sanctify me. I must strive, I must pray, I must, yeah, I get all that. And the better off I am for it, the better off you'll be for it. The more you pray, the better off you'll be. The more you study God's Word, the better off you're going to be. The more you strive to be holy, the better off you're going to be. 
But I know all along working in me is the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am where I am by the grace of God. <laughs> and I'm not what I used to be. Just ask my wife. <laughs> and why is that so? Because I became a preacher, studied the Bible. I, I, that's so because of the grace of the Lord. It's the work he began in me and the work he began in you. And the gospel says he'll keep on performing it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's sanctifying grace. We're being changed into his image. That's the promise of the Lord. Even though at times you feel like you're going backwards, God says, nope, the work's still going on. You'll wander away, but I'll bring you back. You'll fall and I'll pick you up. Because I'm determined to make you like my son. As a fact, you have been predestined to be conformed to his image. Predestined. That's the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ's supplication, his intercession, his high priestly work in heaven, always, always, always praying for his people. When they don't pray, he never stops praying, and he never wearies of their praying to him. Oh, he loves to hear them call upon him. I'm going to be in heaven one day, and you're going to be in heaven, and we're going to see each other in heaven and have a great time around the throne. And we're going to see it was all because the man at God's right hand was praying the whole while that we'd be brought to glory. And he never quit praying until we were brought to glory. Bring them home, Lord. That's the high priest. It is the gospel of Christ's return. This same Jesus, which is taken from you in glory, shall return in like manner as you see them go into glory. I don't know if I'll be one of those who are alive and remain when it happens. And I'll be that way, or I'll be with him when he returns. But I'll be at that return. And the king will come and put down all his enemies and set everything straight and rule forever and ever. This is the word that must continually be preached in season and out of season. It's the only it's the only gospel I ever want to preach. The only one I ever want to believe and obey. The rest of it you can have it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't have a watch. I don't have the time. Don't say, say on, Ted. Because I might be here a good another hour. I would ask you to stay the course. If you're going to follow this command, stay the course in defending the gospel. Defending it. It's under attack. The devil hates it. I'll say more about him tonight. It's... it's, it's, it's it astounds me that it's not seen more clearly what the devil is up to. Even in our culture, what he's doing, it's such an attack upon the gospel. But defend it. Don't let it be attacked and you say nothing. Because you're afraid someone might be upset with you. You just go ahead and defend the gospel. You defend the Lord's cause. Finally, dispense it. Take it out. Spread it. Share it. Tell others about it. It's our calling. 
May God give us all the grace we need to follow His command. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father, we come at the end of this time in the Word, thanking Thee for the help of the Holy Ghost. Thanking Thee, Father, for the Word that we have to preach this Gospel, this Christ, this good news. Lord, preserve this work that it might continue to be instant in season and out of season with this glorious gospel of Christ. Tarry with us throughout this day. Sanctify our conversation, our fellowship. Return us back tonight and draw close to us all. Send us out of here with our hearts burning within that others may feel the heat. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.